Welcome to Trivially Crucial, where we believe every gigantic supercomputer, anarchist scientist, crazy cult, and tightly told short story is important and critical to our lives, no matter how unimportant a story may seem. I'm Michael. And I'm Mandy. And uh, today we get to talk about some uh, highly regarded Isaac Asimov short stories. Uh, I'm super excited about this. Isaac Asimov? Who's that? We don't know about him. No, so... uh, yeah, I guess uh, you and I, I don't know if you recall this, Mandy, but Isaac Asimov is probably the first thing that like you and I bonded over, <laughs> um, or at least that I remember. Uh, I mean, we probably we both knew that each other were nerds and had mutual friends and stuff, but at some point, one of us mentioned Asimov to the other, and then I discovered that you were somebody who liked Asimov as much as I did. Um, yep. <laughs> and yep. it was exciting because he is my favorite author. We, we do love him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I definitely have more than one shelf of Asimov on my bookshelves. I only have one shelf, but it's a large shelf. And uh, I think I have every published novel and I am slowly ma- trying to make sure I have every published short story, but that's a harder task. <laughs> you know, I've never actually sat down to look and see if I've done it to completion. Um, there was a while when I was getting in to, to Asimov. It was during high school and college, especially college. Uh, is also about, I think he was the reason I really got into eBay, because mm-hmm. I needed to track down books that weren't in publication anymore. I sent my grandmother to uh, bookstores. And, and I mean, I didn't send her. She knew I was looking for these books. And uh, for one of my birthdays, she got me the set of... Uh, the uh, Galactic Empire three, which were not being published, they weren't. They didn't weren't republished till very recently. I think late college. I saw the stars like dust sitting on the shelf with a new cover, yeah. and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Uh, so I had these. Uh, I always owned Pebble in the Sky because uh, my mom had it. Uh, and my grandmother found the stars like dust and the currents of space. And uh, it. Uh, I was like, oh my gosh, now I have them all. But those were not published until very re- or republished until very recently. They were out of print because the science in them is very bad. And I think that's kind of why they fell out of favor. Because uh, it was science fiction that all the science had been proven to be false. <laughs> <laughs> and they were just not, they weren't part of his robot universe. I mean, they are, but they're not, right? They're not right. Con- it, they're not really in the strict continuity, and so uh, they just kind of fell out of favor. But they're actually really worth a read, um, and I really enjoyed them. I definitely agree. Um, those are all books that I got on eBay. I think I have two copies of Pebble in the Sky, and both of them are older than my dad. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think, I would guess that a lot of his stuff that I could find on the shelves just a couple of years after I started collecting probably came about because of the iRobot movie. Uh, that's um, probably true. We don't talk about that. It is... If you want to watch iRobot and you want to like it, that's fine. But don't don't even try to relate it to Isaac Asimov in any way, please. Just, just don't mention it in my presence. It just makes <laughs> me angry because uh, I got really excited for that movie, and and we were, we were like, we're not going to talk about robots on this podcast, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> when the movie came out, I thought it was going to be uh, Caves of Steel, and they were just calling it iRobot because iRobot was more famous. Uh, and you can't really make a movie out of iRobot; it's right. not possible. Right. Uh, and they were like, well, Will Smith is a cop, you know, detective. He has a robot sidekick. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Caves of Steel, right? No, <laughs> it's not. So for background, iRobot is a collection of short stories that all happen to be robot themed. And it goes roughly in chronological order of like what year they happen. Um, and uh, you can't do a movie on that. I, I feel like, you know, I've never actually thought about this, but I feel like you could do a really good episodic TV series. A Netflix series. show. You know what you yeah. need is a Netflix show that's just iRobot and it's like a season. Yeah. Uh, and do stick to 30 minute episodes, not yeah. not 60 minutes. Like you could do that pretty 
pretty uh, well, and I think that would be a lot of lot of fun. Yeah, but um, we're not here to talk about robots because no, we're we not. swore we would not talk about the robots on this podcast because someday we will do a podcast just on robots. <laughs> That's true. So before we get into the specific stories that we're doing, um, I think it's worth highlighting the fact that our podcast name, Trivially Crucial, comes from Isaac Asimov. Uh, I'm we probably mentioned this in the first episode or so of our podcast, but uh, four years ago, <laughs> yeah, whenever that was. But it's worth saying it now, uh, saying it again now. And I have the quote on hand. Um, it is: uh, "Individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blinder critics and philosophers of today, but the core of science fiction, its essence, the concept around which it revolves, has become crucial to our salvation if we are to be saved at all." And uh, yeah, I mean, it gets into kind of our core thing where it's you know people disregard fiction in general, not just science fiction, uh, but it's really crucial to understanding the world and potentially make paving way for a better one. So yeah, and I mean, I think it's Asimov, when it comes to his short stories, you know, he's really one of those short story people who falls into big idea short stories, which we'll talk about more when we talk about our final short story. <laughs> uh, which is to say, a lot of his short stories wouldn't necessarily be publishable now, uh, because they're not necessarily having great characterization or plot. I mean, I mean, two of the ones we're talking about today will. Um, but uh, sometimes they're just an idea he had and he wrote like a couple thousand words on how that idea would play out. You know, big picture idea. Um, but even in his uh, big picture ideas, I feel like he's trying to say something about human nature. Uh, and uh, even even when the story is about robots, I feel like it reveals something about us. Uh, I agree. Uh, one of the things I do like as well um, that separates him from others is even when there's a dark message about his podcast or the or excuse me, <laughs> this is a podcast. Isaac Asimov <laughs> has a podcast. Oh, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> I would subscribe. But uh, <laughs> um, if uh, even if there's a dark message in his story, there's sort of this undeniable positivity about human nature that he generally has. Uh, and I really, really like that. It's sort of a, even at times where he completely misses the ball or flubs some of the science because he's trying to do near future science a lot of the time. And it's real easy to get that really, really wrong in really obvious ways when you look in hindsight, but we're not obvious, you know, at the time. Uh, I, it's sort of, there's this purity of message that he's got that, uh, that sometimes, you know, I, wish I had more in other people's fiction. Well, and I feel like this is really displayed in the first story, but Asimov kind of has this theme, even in his novels, uh, that uh, even when everything is horrible, and it seems like mankind is at their lowest low, they can come back from that. Uh, like the phoenix rising from the ashes, right? right. Uh, it, you know, take the empire, right? And it's falling to ashes all around everybody, but the foundations come from that, and an even better future. Uh and uh, or earth uh after robots um and how we uh it just seems like earth is a really terrible situation but then after that earth just expands <laughs> into the universe you know like not literally i meant earth <laughs> what you, you know what i mean maybe uh but uh and, and i feel like the first story even that we're going to talk about even though it seems like a downer there is still that idea in it that we will always come back yeah uh i agree and um so on that note, uh, before we get started on the actual stories, uh, I want anybody who's listening to know that in the show notes, I'm going to put links to all three stories that as of the time of publication, these are all live online, so you can read them that way. Uh, although Mandy, you and I both read 
all of three of these stories in a book called uh, Isaac Asimov, The Complete Stories, Volume 1. There is which, no volume two. <laughs> uh, there is actually a volume two. It's just It just hasn't been republished since like 1992. <laughs> um, I actually just found that you can buy it used on Amazon. I'm probably going to pick up a copy uh, <laughs> just to have point. it. I will. Um, but I will, I will put a copy in the show notes to where you can purchase this as well in case you want to do that because if you like these short stories i think you should read the rest of them in this collection um uh, i will also try my best to put chapter markers in the podcast so if your podcast client supports chapter markers you can skip to the appropriate point in this podcast whenever you finish reading a given short story um before we actually get into those i want to give very brief synopses uh to sort of the higher level not the whole plot but just kind of what each story is about so um the first story we're going to be doing is 1941's nightfall um and it essentially entertains the concept of here's a planet that has many suns and because of it people don't really understand the concept of darkness they're not exposed to it and uh essentially this visits like what happens if it turns out that every uh, you know every given number of years people actually are exposed to darkness after when people just aren't like, and we're talking, you know, entire civilization civilizations are built up in the time between this. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting, interesting concept to explore, um, that we will get into in detail. Um, do you want to describe, uh, the dead past? Uh, you would ask in, me to describe that one uh, in, in broad strokes. Uh, the, the dead past is about a future where uh, academia is extremely uh, streamlined. <laughs> uh, everyone has their uh, expertise that they're supposed to be an expert in. Uh, and there's a historian who knows that there is a the device that allows you to look back in time and he would like to use that device. Uh, but he has denied use of that device. And so he gets a physicist to, uh, build the device for him that allows them to see into the path. Uh, and there's uh, a lot of repercussions. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, uh, finally, so the dead past was written in 1956, which is 15 years after nightfall. And in the same year, Asimov also wrote the last question, which is, it skips over the course of just a few pages. It skips across multiple generations of humanity starting in our near future. Uh, well, not near future, mid future, I suppose. Uh, uh, the near future if we were in 1950. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it, and it essentially talks about uh, people asking the giant, they rely heavily on supercomputers and uh, that kind of help society, help humanity overcome various uh, challenges uh, ahead in terms of like energy and how to keep pushing humanity past the brink uh, uh, of whatever current challenges it faces. And every single, every, every once in a while, humans ask essentially, well, what do we eventually do? Because at some point we have to deal with the fact that entropy defines an end to the universe. What do we do then? And, uh, and it kind of just revisits that question with, from different perspectives as humanity goes further and further and further into the future. So, uh, cool. Well, on that note, we will start with, uh, nightfall. So, Mandy, where do you want to start with this? So Nightfall is forever intrinsically linked in my mind with the movie Pitch Black, for better or for worse. never seen that. You've never seen Pitch Black? No. Well, I think I read Nightfall and saw Pitch Black around the same time. Uh, Pitch Black came out around 2000. It's kind of a slasher film, kind of not, because it's it's more like a survival film, I guess, in the sense that they're not being killed by like a murderer. Um, It's like animals. Um, but, uh, the whole idea of pitch black is there's this planet that has many suns. Uh, it's 
like this story. Uh, and every once in a while, uh, everything lines up. So they have no, no light on their planet. Now, in Pitch Black, uh, that's when the creatures who live underneath the surface of the planet come up and eat everyone. <laughs> uh, and I think that happens every 20 years. And obviously, these are settlers from Earth, so they have seen darkness before. So they're not scared by darkness. Uh, but so Nightfall is, and kind of has the similar concept, right? That you have this planet with many suns, and obviously Nightfall was first. And I would not be surprised if the writers of Pitch Black read Nightfall and then we're like, huh, what if we made that into a horror movie? Um, and uh, uh, Nightfall is just one of those stories that's always stuck in my mind. And and weirdly, the two parts of it that have always stuck in my mind have been uh, the like carnival ride through the tunnel of darkness that drives people insane. Which is only mentioned in passing. As yeah. pretty, almost everything in this is mentioned in passing. Right. But that, that just really stuck to me as like a vivid uh, image. That it's kind of like the tunnel of love, right? Except it's it's black, and uh, they come out, and like one in ten people have gone insane from this, or something like that. Uh, and that just really struck me as a kid. That like, oh, what what if you had never seen darkness? Because uh, we take it for granted. Like I have been in Carlsbad Cavern, uh, and if you go on the tour, they'll they'll turn the lights off. Uh, and it's, it's dark. You can't see anything. Like you move your hand in front of your face. You can't see it. Your eyes can never adjust to that level of darkness. Uh, right. But it didn't drive me insane. <laughs> right. Because we experienced darkness pretty frequently. Right. Right. And I knew there were people around me. Like I could feel them. Like, you know, I was sitting with my family. Uh, and uh, uh, we did that for like five minutes and no one went insane. Uh <laughs> And I mean, and this isn't even pure darkness because they still have stars, right? Uh, but they've just never experienced that before. And they have this whole religion built up around these stars and how the stars take your soul from you and all these other things. And I just think it's this really interesting idea that people don't believe in night, you know, they think it's not real. Yeah. Uh, the fascinating thing is, if you think about this, um, it's, you're tempted to think of this uh, in terms of like, oh, they're the equivalent of, you know, the 20th century, but they're really not. Uh, and if you think about their technology and the way they even talk about their figuring out astronomy and so on, they're, you know, they're maybe in the 1800s uh, in terms of like figuring all this stuff out. Uh, their society, it, I mean, you find out that they have a uh, an archaeological record of like, they're just society dies over and over again at like, 20 something uh or what are the increments what it's are like the 2000 years it's 2000 years so it's pretty close to us but they're not as far along as we are um they don't yeah. have computers and stuff like that as far as we can tell um, it, it's like when they talk about gravity right they haven't figured out the law of gravitation they just figured it out uh because they have so many suns and they couldn't account for the way the suns were going because they didn't know they were other planets. They didn't it's know a, they had a moon. Exactly. It's it's very, it's fascinating because there's so many things where one of my favorite things about this short story is how it attacks the way we think. Uh, not just the, the surface level thing of like, what would we do if we've never experienced darkness? But little things like, how do we arrive at our conclusions? Um, and they, how do they, we navigate without stars? Right. Um, and they talk about that again, like you said, theory of gravitation is super complicated for them to figure out because, well, you know, why would we even think that anything is changing other than the fact that we're moving around this sun? Like that's literally the only thing we see is that, oh, all these stars are in, the, or all these suns are in the sky. Um, you see the fact that, well, they never had to really deal with developing illumination. Um, you know, they're only faced with 
in two months of essentially believing this is happening, you find out at the end that, oh, we've del- we figured out how to make lamps because it's just never occurred to us that we would make something that doesn't have a window, <laughs> right? It's <laughs> I, like living in New Mexico. Wait. <laughs> so um, many skylights. There's, uh, there are little things like uh, they talk about um, one of the people starts to enter- entertain the idea is like, you know, imagine a world where you only had one son. Now, of course, that's not reasonable because one side would there'd always one side of the planet would always be in darkness and you wouldn't have enough heat and you know people aren't wired that way but we make all kinds of presuppositions as far as how are human brains wired and over and over and over again as we learn more and more we discover people's assumptions about how people are wired are wrong right right um you know think about now with the way people talk about gender and how that's different from you know 100 years ago 50 years ago 30 years ago right is it's like, you know, some of these things are really just a product of how we're raised and what we're exposed to uh, and how we react to things. It's If you're raised in a different environment, certain things don't have to do with how you're wired. And in this society, like, there's no reason for them to believe that human brains can function reasonably without light. Right. Well, why would you even assume that? Um, if you think about the way that we talk about space exploration, we always operate on the assumption that and it you know, that carbon-based life forms, like that's how life works. We look for planets similar to ours at a similar distance from the sun. And we have all kinds of scientific reasoning behind why we think that should be true, right? Right. Uh, But it's still, when it comes down to it, it's from our perspective. And this is sort of a a neat way to attack that because they live in a different world than us. And we see all the assumptions they're making that are clearly false from our perspective. And I just really, really like that. Um, yeah, I mean, you have this psychologist talking and we're like, everything he's saying is complete crap, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> uh, the main character that you get, he's not the, I don't know if he's the main character, but the character who talks the most <laughs> is the psychologist, right? Right. Uh, and then we've also discovered that they've stashed people away, right? Into like a, like an arc, uh, you know, they, they put people away to survive this cataclysm that's coming. And it makes you wonder if the next cycle will be different. Uh, but they won't know what happened, right? These people who are in the bunker, uh, they won't have seen the stars. Uh, they won't have seen darkness. They'll just come out and everything will be like normal, except everything will be burned down and everybody else will be slightly insane. Uh, everyone else will have survived an apocalypse in what, what is it? It's like a day and a half or something like that. It's not no, even half very a day. long. Half a day. Everyone else will have survived an apocalypse of half a day. And these people are going to come out. And uh, how will that affect everything? They know something happened. And people will try to tell them about the stars. But to them, that'll just sound like those same stories that the cult people were talking about, right? Stars that take your soul. And it talks about that, too. It talks about how this, you know, they've the scientists have thought about this to some degree. They're like, we're going to subject ourselves to this so we can document it so that those people can get the documentation and hopefully get the next round to start off on a better foot than we did. Um, But then as time goes on, you're also like, well, we have to contend with these radicals who are part of this cult who, yes, they're technically right in some ways, but because the people who are likely to be in this cult are inherently compromised in the way they're thinking, they are, you know, the reasons they have are compromised. They are not willing to actually face the truth for truth's sake because they are rabid, uh, they're, you know, radical religious fanatics. They're not people who are concerned about the truth. They're concerned about their belief being vindicated, right? Right. Um, and they're going to they're gonna burn down the place where the astronomy people live. So any data they're taking, it's probably going to be destroyed. Uh, and if you think about it, they, they even talk about the fact that this newspaper person, they talk about like, well, you've only been saying this for two months versus, you know, if you had had 200 years to try and convince people of this, maybe you could 
convince people of the scientific truth, but otherwise you just sound like it sounds the same as these radical cult people. And these messages are going to mix together after this happens again, right? Like that's just how this is going to work. So your hard science messaging is going to get compromised and therefore people are going to disregard it in the next cycle. Well, Um, and it's amazing how quickly people lose information, right? So 2,000 years is an eternity uh, in, uh, you know, historic cycles. And if something hasn't happened for 2,000 years, even if you have scientific proof that it happened, people are going to be skeptical. They're going to be like, well, it never happened again. Right. Uh, And Uh, unless you can have, unless you can have some kind of hard evidence for people to look at, and even then people will find reasons to, you know, to oppose it. I mean, this is a thread that we'll see in other stories, but people do have this sort of opposition to, um, to institutional science, right? Um, it's a thing that we definitely deal with in modern society. I mean, you think about anti-vaxxers and you think about, uh, um, you think about, uh, what's a climate, uh, yeah, climate, basically, you know, climate change deniers and, um, and so on. And just, uh, and what's the, what's that non-science that people have where they like super dilute stuff in order to in order to make so-called medicine i can't even think what it's called right now um homeopathy yeah homeopathy (laughs) uh and so you know you have people who are like oh the man is trying to keep us down by denying this knowledge and you can't really trust them and this is a throw that we'll see in others but it's like well sometimes science is just science (laughs) and uh and if they had an advanced enough society where they had computers and could record all of this and and that stuff didn't deteriorate and people were willing to look at it people were like well you know Maybe they just, it's a hoax, or maybe this is, you know, faked and stuff. I mean, look at dinosaurs. I have honestly known people who thought dinosaurs were a hoax. I absolutely know people who do. Um, And, you know, I am a religious person and who embraces science, and it frustrates me, (laughs) Um, uh, as I'm sure it frustrates you in the same way. Oh, yeah. Uh, These are some th- great Sunday school conversations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are many and many other similar notes that we can have in terms of just like geological surveys and so on that are like, this is within the realms of the universe that we understand. We can pretty clearly describe this. And the only argument is, well, no, that's different from the straightforward explanation that I have of taking this text literally versus being like, hey, like, we can understand this world around us, you know, and, uh, and that's a thread again, that we'll revisit in other stories. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's really cool the way that Asimov takes what is the surface story, and it's a really tightly written story, and just interleaves all these different concepts. Um, I will say that, you know, when you read all of Asimov's work, it's apparent at some point, he is definitely not religious. (laughs) Right. Uh, And, uh, you know, obviously, we are both very religious. Uh, and yet we love Asimov. Uh, but uh, things like the cultists in this story, I feel like those are reoccurring uh, in other stories. There are other cultists <laughs> <laughs> in other stories. It's like almost every religion, you know, it, is a cult. And in this that, you know, in particular, like my criticism would, of it would be is they talk about this cult and they call it a cult. And it's like, no, this is the religion of their planet. <laughs> You know, uh, not everyone believes it. Not everyone takes it as seriously as they once did. But basically, everyone 2000 years ago experienced this trauma of darkness. Uh, and they created a religion out of it to explain the cyclical nature of their universe. Uh, and uh, I, the, all the cultists were exposed to in the story are very crazy. Uh, but I like to think that even in a nightfall world, there could be 
people who believe that both the science and the cult is true. Right. And so some of that, of course, we could give him, you know, wave it off and say like, hey, it's a short story, limited perspectives. But but I agree. I mean, there's one particular character who says some uh, the psychologist when he's describing, I think it's the psychologist when he describes sort of how this history must have been created in the first place, however many cycles ago. Uh, and it would be basically the stupid people and the and so on who would create the story, right? Uh, and then and when we get fed, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, some of that is the way that these people is the way that say maybe this character would do it, but some of it is definitely Asimov's bias against um, against any religious people. And in a more fleshed out version of this, which we will talk about briefly, <laughs> but in a more fleshed out version of this, what I would like to see is that you have a sensible, you know, at least a couple of sensible religious members who are like, you know, I think that there's a good. That, that there is some evidence in this in this recording that makes me think that this is true. Um, now, why exactly it is displayed this way, and there are some some odd disconnects here and there that I'm not sure connect, and I would love to see an explanation for how this all works, you know? And, and well, I think that do, you can briefly... We do talk about that briefly in this, right? That the, it was the cult's holy book that led them to think, what if there were other gravitational bodies? Uh, right. You know, and they're because they're talking about like what? What if there were nine other suns? You know, just further away. <laughs> well, well, sort of. So they actually said it's because the gravitational theory stopped aligning with a little bit of their movement, just a little bit off, is why they then embrace like ask for records from the book. Right. So first they had the question because they were like, hmm, something's wrong with this calculation that we've had up till now, which is how science works, right? Right. You develop a theory that fits well, and then as soon as you see that it diverges, you're like, huh? Well, what explains this divergence? And they're like, well, let's let's go with this, and and so they start to fill it in. Um, but yeah, I it, it's still it's a bit dismissive. Um, now, yeah, so uh, I guess that really the only real other criticism I have of the actual short story is right, right, right at the end. It's like the second to last page, and it's just this little thing that uh, when they finally see the stars, and it says through it shown the stars, like this is when the stars are coming out. And then it says, not Earth's feeble 3,600 stars yeah. visible to the eye. And I'm like, oh, no, Asimov, you didn't – why'd you do that? <laughs> like, it's like a breaking of the fourth wall. It's like, oh, I'm talking – now I'm the author talking to people who know Earth. And it was just like the only part in the entire book where that happens. And it's really, really weird. And I feel like yeah. an editor should have caught that, you know? Well, they wrote stories and differently back then. <laughs> they did. 1941 was a very different time in writing. And – uh Editing didn't really go the same way. <laughs> yeah, but it, it definitely uh, threw me out of the story as well. Uh, so, and, and the other thing that confused me uh, is he says, you know, Lagash, Lagash, Lagash uh, yeah. is in the middle of a cluster and that it's not 3,600 stars, it's 30,000 mighty suns. And I'm like, so is it even really dark? <laughs> you know, like, uh, I get that it's not like sun, like sun bright, but you know, like, how dark are we talking here? If these are fairly close stars, uh, would these people even then really go insane? Uh, are we just talking like there's like 30,000 moons out there, you know? I mean, like right. that level of brightness, because uh, the moon's pretty bright at night. And yes, this would be weird, but we're not talking pitch black by any means. Not the movie. I mean, right. real pitch black. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I was just kind of hoping he would, like that, I was just kind of like, why can't it just be regular stars, Asimov? And, and that's, I honestly think that it does undermine the story. I, I think, I, and I can't tell, like I still read it as stars, but it's running through the person who's looking, he's like, oh man, we had just talked about the fact that each one of these is, su is a sun, but these are so many that must be so far away. And 
I would think that replacing these two sentences with another two sentences that said something like, and not a mere eight or 10 or even a few right, based thousand. Right, earlier conversation. Yeah. And not even, you know, but truly millions that are so far away and of different sizes that must be, you know, and just extrapolate that out to be like, our planet is one of like, we are nothing. Right. You know, and, and that would, I think, hit exactly just it would really extrapolate out the previous conversation perfectly and and not pull us out and i feel like you know if he had written it 20 years later it might have had such a small tweak but uh, but as such it's still a great work and i really like it a lot um yeah it's definitely very affecting like you know it's not one of those stories i ever forgot absolutely um which takes us into i think the novelization um it's funny disagreements about this (laughs) well we used to and i think we don't anymore Ah. um so you and I, when we first talked about this, I preferred the novel to the short story. Uh, and that was because I read the novel first. Right. I, re- I mean, I read it probably twice before I read the short story. But since then, I've read the short story more. And with time, I've gotten less and less patient with unnecessarily long fiction. Yes. Um, and I've gotten to appreciate more and more conciseness. And, uh, and so as such, it's cool to see kind of someone explicitly draw out kind of how some of these things would go and make some of these conversations larger ones. But but in the end, I think that the con- the kind of neatness of the short story far supersedes the extra detail you got. Like, I don't really need any more Asimov to flesh out all the different ways that this can extrapolate out. I, I've kind of got to handle it on uh, I handle on that myself. Well, I mean, it's a big picture idea. And then when someone comes and they're like, well, let's flesh it out. Make Let's make all these characters real characters and build up this world more. I, I just feel like at some point, I'm like, all of this breaks down. <laughs> you know, like, uh, did you really think through everything completely? You know, uh, <laughs> does this really make sense that you would not have lamps? You know, would you really have all of these windows? You know, like things that just when it comes down to it, I'm like, I'm still not sure they make sense because Surely there are miners on this planet, right? Do we never mine for metals? Uh, And in a short story, I can accept that because it's a short story. We only have so much time to explore. But in a novel, I'm like, so you're telling me no one on this planet mines. Right. I mean, you think about in the short story themselves, they explore the thought of what would happen on a a single planet with a single sun that would have an elliptical orbit and so on. And for them, it's like, oh, it's a cool little thing. Like, yeah, it's a neat, neat thing to entertain. But if they're if they were attempted to draw out exactly how this worked, they would not be able to explain our work, right? It just wouldn't go. And it's and it goes vice versa too. Like when suddenly when you actually take the time to start explaining things, all the gaps in how that explanation works start showing. And right. it, it just doesn't And and it just you know, having read the short story first, kinda like what you're telling saying about unnecessary words, it, it just annoyed me because I'm like, why I'm like three hundred words away from the nightfall. Right. And I'm living in this story that's three hundred words be- three hundred pages before a nightfall is gonna happen when the whole book's called nightfall and it's about this thing and we're like you know and it's not really a climax it's not really a climax in a in a traditional sense like no one wins at the end of the story yes the astronomers are right but they don't win you know so it's like you read this whole book where you're like they're all gonna die in the end (laughs) Uh, i mean yes there's like the group of people set aside or whatever but it's not it's not a very i don't think it makes a good traditional novel it's definitely interesting uh and i read it uh, but I, I much prefer. I would say that if you, if you get into Asimov by way of us talking about these short stories, I would say like, you know, you're better served reading a whole bunch of his other short stories and novels and really like get to the n- nightfall novel. If you just, if you start to get obsessed with him, like we are, <laughs> you know, when you're getting to that point where you're just going to read anything. <laughs> 
that, that has Asimov his name on. touched, uh, like we are, then read it. Yes. Yeah, but but that's really it. Like it, it's very very low on the totem pole of Asimov works in, in the <laughs> end, and um and I definitely like I said my uh my opinion has changed with time, and uh, there you go, opinions change. <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. Um. So going from that, uh, this kind of worldwide thing that takes the plays over the course of what a couple hours yes it's very short um we get to the dead past which takes place over the course of a few weeks is that uh it might be a little bit longer but yeah it's on that scale um so uh this is the most this is almost darker than nightfall <laughs> darker than nightfall ah, uh, uh almost dark <laughs> it's almost darker than nightfall but also not it's like much more ambiguous with its ending right yeah uh so how do you feel because i've i You've mentioned a few things to me right before we started recording and even during this, and I'm not really sure how to get a read on what you think. I don't like this story. Interesting. So, so the thing that strikes me about this story is when you mentioned the story that you wanted us to read it, I was like, what story are you talking about? I had no memory of the story. I've read this whole <laughs> book, but the other two stories that we were talking about, Nightfall and um, uh, The Last Question, I think is what it's called, uh, those are stories that like have defined my view of as like when I think of Asimov outside of robots, I think of those short stories. Like the last question is a story I have referenced multiple times in conversations with people when talking <laughs> big picture philosophy. Uh, this story, I didn't remember existed. Uh, reading it, I wasn't particularly intrigued. Uh, I got to the end of it and I was like, okay. So I'm not a huge fan of the story. I, I think it brings up some interesting ideas. Uh, it brings up some uh, interesting topics about academia. And uh, for once, the government is kind of the good guys. But uh, <laughs> Kind of, sort of. <laughs> uh, I don't think they're malicious in this. Uh, right. And uh, it, it's definitely an interesting story, but it is not a story I ever remembered existed before you recommended it. So it's really funny that you should say that because The Dead Past is actually one of his really highly regarded works if you go through and and you look things it's not referenced often but if you just go and look it's literally the first story in this book too (laughs) yeah like if you go up and you look stories about people talking about best asimov works and a lot of people will put this as like number one or number two um wow i disagree with those people (laughs) so i think it's really you know we talked about nuance and nightfall and all the different things he attacks and i like The Dead Past, for many of the same reasons, it's my least favorite of the re- these three works, but I don't know that I would say it's less good than the other two. I mean, um, sure. Objectively, it's well written. <laughs> so, so, I mean, let's get into it and talk about why neither of us like it as much as the other two. Uh, I think for me, a big part of it is that it's less optimistic in terms of, of like, human nature. <laughs> and that gets to me. because It's also as, kind of slow. It is slow. Um, it's meandering, which he can get that way sometimes, yeah. as far as conversation. Uh, you know, it's one of those, when I was reading it, you know, I, I generally think of Asimov's short stories as most of them revolving around some big idea. And usually, having read them all, I know what the big idea is going into the story. Like, you know, rereading Nightfall, I know what the big idea is, right? Uh, it's that... This planet never sees darkness. Darkness comes. Everyone goes insane. Uh, rereading the dead past, I was like, I have no idea what this is trying to get to. Like, I, is it academia is bad? The government's bad? Looking into the past is bad? Uh, that physicists can go crazy if you set them off on the wrong path? Uh, like, it took me a while to be like, oh, I see it now with, with the wife. Because it actually takes a while for the wife, like, to properly get introduced. Um, but, uh, which I think makes it interesting. Um, but... I also just didn't care about any of the characters. So I think for me, 
you know, I, I mentioned before that one of the things I really like about Asimov is sort of the like purity of his sci-fi. And, and it's what you said. Essentially, there's most of the time a central big idea and you're like, oh, okay, that's what this is. And then you follow along. And this book, and I think it's very much intentional, or this story, he sort of moves the puck on you. Right. He keeps like, you keep thinking you've got a handle of it. And then he's like, nope, nope, you thought you had it, but you don't. And he keeps, and I'm pretty sure that's on purpose. Like he just keeps moving it kind of pulling the rug out from you little by little by little and you keep kind of trying to keep on top of it and then by the end you're like oh well crud (laughs) uh that's not where i thought this was going so uh, to start with like you mentioned this is you know he starts off with a a sort of he tells you up front that they overlooked this thing and if only we had looked at this uh taken this historian seriously we would have avoided this disaster so you know that there's some kind of disaster coming but you don't really know what it is um and you start to Kind of from the get-go, if you're reading actively, you're trying to predict, well, what is the downside to being able to see the past, right? Um, and, well, and it's because we're thinking like the professor. We're thinking Carthage. Right. Like, what is the downside to being able to look and see what Carthage was like? Right. And at the same time, it's like, why does he care so much about Carthage? <laughs> because yeah. is it really that significant? And the answer is no, it's not. Uh, and we find out why later. And that's, that's actually one of the touches I do like, is it really turns the professor into sort of a deeper character. Than he would be otherwise. On the other hand, I've known some professors. <laughs> <laughs> they don't all have reasons. <laughs> no, no, they don't. Uh, and that's the thing is Asimov very much can get that way about, I mean, he is an academic, you know, or he was before he died. Uh, and he plays with that stereotype a lot, right? And so he, we've read characters that he's had, which are the professors without reasons other than pure pursuit of science, you know? Um, but uh, but yeah, in, in this case, he, he follows the professor um, what's interesting to me is how much this highlights much more because this takes place sort of in our world is how much he gets completely wrong about science and development, which is how some of his stories age very weirdly, right? Well, um, I feel like the development of science in this world, though, and not talking about the particulars of science, but the academia is the government inserting control to keep certain technologies down, right? Right. Uh, so it seems like a weird system. Uh, but then you realize, oh, they never give grants in this thing, and you're not allowed to research outside of your grant area. That said, I have no idea how you can do science without being able to touch other areas. <laughs> right, and, and that's one of these things. Is So it's about a quarter of the way through, um, he says, uh, you know, he, when it's, I think, just explaining to us what happened, is like, by 2000, remember, this was written in 1956, so it says, uh, by 2000, the industrial... Uh, The industrial combines had become a branch of the world government, and thereafter, the financing of research and therefore its direction naturally became centralized under a department of the government, which is not how things went, right? So um, part of this is, of course, it's a scare tactic against communism. And if you know Asimov's history and the time that he's writing this, I mean, he and his parents came from Russia, right? Right. Um, And so they escaped communism, essentially. And, you know, he grew up in capitalist America. uh, And this is... Very much written in that light. Now, he does attack this theme later on, where he's like, you know, where his, the, who becomes the main character? I can't, I'm terrible with names. What's his, um... The physicist? Yeah, the physicist. Uh, Foster? Yeah, Foster. He mentions, um, a compromise at some point where, uh, I think it's him who, who mentions, like, you know, yes, we're gonna have to break the system, and no, I'm not a pure anarchist, but there has to be a blend somewhere, right? Which is ostensibly what Asimov really thinks, right? Is like, you need some direction, but you also need to have freedom for science. And Foster says, you know, one of the things I really like, um, and this is kind of in the latter part of the story, 
he says, uh, you know, moral judgments can't stand in the way. There isn't one uh, one advance of any time in history that mankind hasn't had the the ingenuity to pervert. And he goes on to mention that, like, we also have to have the ingenuity to preserve and, and so on. Uh, and that's kind of on the flip side of society's view, which everybody seems to adhere to to some degree or another until they start going down this path earlier, which is that a, uh, and this is again, another quote, uh, a scientist shouldn't be too curious. Uh, he thought in bitter d- dissatisfaction with himself. It's a dangerous trait. And I think that is Foster himself thinking that earlier. Right. And, right. uh, and it's just, it's a fascinating, like the way this changes, because of course, what defines science is curiosity, right? Like there's not, you can't really have science without it. And exactly that thing that you said about how you could possibly preserve, you know, explore science without any other is said in an argument towards the end. It's like, all of science hangs together. It's one piece. If you want to stop one part, you've got to stop it all. And the government figure is like, you know, maybe that's true, but we're sure going to try because we know the disaster or we think we know the disaster that's that awaits us. Right. This thing is dangerous and we want to keep from building the thing. Right. And so it's like this weird thing where it's like, we think we know that we are spelling disaster for everything that all of society up until now, if science progresses, but all we can do is stop science progressing and try and guide it. And, you know, ever, all of them start sim- seem to realize, well, if this discovery came by not even exploring that, it's only a matter of time until something else does the same. Right. Um, uh, and it's a cool story. And I like the fact that that all interacts. Um, but it's a real downer, too, because... Yeah. When they all realize the implication, they're like, oh, crap. Uh, Which the implication you know. is, because we haven't said it, and I'm sure some people are <laughs> listening to this, is they want to build a chronoscope to look back in time. Uh, and uh, uh, the main, the early main character, Potterly, wants to look back to Carthage. Uh, but then when Foster finally does build a chronoscope, uh, which turns out you can do with random household appliances now. Uh, because apparently it's not that complicated. Right. Uh, and technology has advanced. And because of his area of expertise, right? Uh, which I forget what it is, but I feel like it's something like Gravitrons or something. Right. Uh, the, the equivalent being that, like, let's say exploring space, like, ast- astrology was dangerous, but, you know, and so people couldn't do it 200 years ago. But man, uh, optics have ex- advanced a lot in that time. <laughs> right. And, you know. So he so. built it and he's like, well, sir, I can't do what you want me to do. I look at Carthage because I can only look back like, what, 120 years, something like that. Uh, and even that far back is pretty fuzzy. We can't go back any further than that. Uh, and uh, then, of course, we get the example of why it's bad uh, when uh, is because the wife, because, of course, it's the wife. Oh. The woman is always weak willed. Uh they have this is she is oh, we we have to talk about her i have yes who uh they have a their their three-year-old died potterly and his wife's three-year-old died and all she wants to do is relive that time to to spend all of her time just looking at her three-year-old and so potterly realizes you know i don't want my wife seeing that because one he thinks he killed their child uh so he's trying to stop his wife from seeing this thing but not even they are realizing the full implications which of course the government man realizes uh well the government man knows because he he gets them in the end and he's like how do you think i knew you were here because how far back in time is the past he's basically been spying on them yeah because you can look at an instant an instant ago which is the present and that's still the past, you know. Right. And so basically they've unleashed this device on the world because, of course, Foster published it um, that uh, will allow everyone to spy on everyone anywhere uh, and or get stuck in the past like like Potterly's wife. Uh, and there will be no more privacy is is the implication the government man uh, says. Yeah. Uh, and it's fascinating, of course, because 
if you think about it, like they never had the opportunity that they're sitting here and they're like, the government's going to get on us and we don't know why, because we've discovered that this is a plot like the you know, and so it's this distrust of the government that pushes them to publish right away. Right. Because the government's not saying anything. And so it's sort of this like opposition to people who really are keeping the truth away from people, you know, that like they really are doing that, but they don't know the motivations because the government can't really talk about the motivations without revealing the fact that, hey, this is possible. And so it's this weird thing where the government's doing what it thinks it has to do. Um, and, uh, and it's just this huge mess. And it's like, if only they had known sooner, they would have stopped. But in the end, this was going to happen at some point anyways. It was an inevitability, right? Well, and you know, it's, it's what the government man says. And I can't remember his name, but if only he had taken Potterly seriously. Right. right? Uh, but he didn't because he looked like an ancient history professor. <laughs> right. But, and again, at the same time, though, Foster says it. It's like, look, there's going to be something that you and I cannot imagine from some other field that's going to touch this, too. Like, this is, unless you basically decide you're going to destroy civilization itself to stop this from progressing, this is just going to happen. And even then, you destroy civilization, it's going to build back up again because they're not going to have the lesson. Like, you can't tell them about the danger without making it, without bringing it to be, right? Uh, so it's a it's an interesting thing, and, it, and it's oddly dark because all the best things you want to think about these people, including Foster's noble noble thing about like, look, the science matters, and you can't contain science for this. It's like in the end, all of it is kneecapped as it goes, and I think that might be why so many people hold it in high regard. Is it is more pessimistic and darker, and Asimov doesn't do that often, well, and I'm, people tend to like that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't view pessimistic as better. Uh, I don't either. And nobody in this story is a good person. And this story really highlights the problem with early Asimov, which is women. Uh, he gets better. Uh, I think Susan Calvin, you know, is a great character, uh, you know, and there are better female characters. Uh, Susan Calvin's probably the best because he treats her like... Like a scientist. Like a scientist. An independent person. <laughs> like, does she care? He says she cares about this more than anything. So therefore, she's not following foibles. Mostly, there's one story. She doesn't have the same foibles as other women. So uh, just for, is that we're weak. For people to know, uh, Susan Calvin is the protagonist of many of the early robot stories. And I mean early chronologically, like things right. that happen around the time of development of robotics in his universe. Um, in his robot universe. These three stories have nothing to do with that universe. Um, but it's a fascinating thing because, yeah, like talk more about the wife because both of us obviously know about the many problems of it, but your perspective is much more valuable than mine. And I would love to hear you I, go on a rant about her. All of our perspectives are valuable, but she had her three-year-old died, which is a traumatic thing. But of course, Potterly is able to move past it, even though he thinks he murdered her. He's able to move past of it because of his work and he can put himself in his work. Whereas the woman is just like, oh, what purpose does she even have without her child? Uh, which, you know, I am not trying to trivialize the trauma of having a child die. That is traumatic. It's, it's just that it's just the way it's portrayed that Potterly can basically move past it or at least keep it tamped down, right? Where it really only affects him once or twice, but the woman can never overcome it ever, ever. Uh, cause she's she, a mess. Yeah, she is a mess. She can barely function. Like she can barely get dinner on the table because that's important in 1950. Uh, and, uh, like she, like they barely talk to each other because what do they have to talk about anymore? Which definitely happens when a child dies. I think the, the odds are most couples get divorced after a child dies. Um, but 
this woman is not able to pull her life together in any sense, in any sense. She just basically sits around and sulks all day. And it has been like 20 years. We're not talking like this just happened. It's been 20 years and she has I been I think longer, sulking. like 22, 23 years, right? Yeah. Because she would be the same age as Foster and I think he's 25 in this story. Right. And she was three when she died. It has been a long time, but because she's a woman, she cannot move past it. And now that she has this technology, all she's going to do is sit there and watch her child. And this and this is something we see in a lot. Asimov does not think highly of women overall. Uh, when you it read gets all better as he gets uh, better, still not good, but better as you know, you get decades past this, but it's still yes, I agree completely. You know, he all of his women are kind of a little bit silly. They're kind of obsessed with men. And they're always kind of willing to put aside even if they're scientists, they're always kind of willing to put it aside for men. Uh, yeah. there, there is the one story about Susan Calvin with the mind reading robot, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, she, her putting on her makeup and stuff. And that's just always an image that stuck with me as a kid that like uh, Susan Calvin's willing to change who she is for a man. Uh, and I love Susan Calvin. Like, uh, but of course the only reason why Asimov hide, holds Susan Calvin higher than any other woman is because she has basically destroyed what makes her a woman in face of the science. Right. It's like, she basically stopped being feminine in any way. Right. 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 And and it's partially because of that lesson, right? Right. Um, and, and it's it, we don't want to spoil that story. You should find it and read it. But uh, um, but yeah, it, it's a big. It is very much problematic, and of course, it's emblematic of the time and science fiction in general. And we still have this issue all the time now. Uh, and it's just rougher and rougher as it ages. And it's one of the again, Asimov is my favorite author, but a lot of his science fiction doesn't age quite as well because right. he is steeped very much in his time. And some of that's novel. Some of that is fun. Like, I love, and we'll get into this in the last question, I love how poorly his technology ages. Um, <laughs> because it just, it, it's sort of like steampunk. It's like, the world literally could never develop this way. And I love that it's just a completely different science world, right? Right. Um, but even in, when he gets into far-flung futures, the societies are always dominated by men. And cigarettes are always a thing. <laughs> like, you know, and it's just like, he, it, it seems you know, weird. At some point, though, I, I prefer the Asimov stories that are only men because he cannot handle women. <laughs> right, like, exactly. It's like a happy accident. It <laughs> doesn't bother me because there are no women in it. You know, uh, there are no women for me to be like, this woman is written poorly. Whereas in this story, I was just like, of course, it's the wife who can't, who can't move on in any way. And not like, you know, she's still always kind of has like this aura of sadness. No, no, she is a mess. She is like a, uh, you know, just one step away from a nervous breakdown all the time. Uh, and if it was just her, if it was just this one story, I would be like, this is not a statement on woman, women, right? This is this particular character. But the problem is it's not just this story. And keep in mind, even if it wasn't just the story, if let's say this was the only story of his that existed and we read it, she's the only woman in the story. And that's the thing. Like, it's one thing to say if you have three women in the story and two of them do not have such problems, then you can write one with well, that no problem. I would even become a give him thing. a pass if in his other stories, all of his women were solid. And I'd be right. like, this is this one story. It's really just about Potterly and Foster. And Potterly happens to be married and his wife happens to be this way. Uh, but it, it it's not. <laughs> well, and that, that comes no to Foster couldn't be a girl. There's literally okay. no reason. No reason. Um, be, and if anything, that would have driven it home more because, like, that you know, 
they come over and over this emotional point is, you know, he reminds them of her daughter because she would have married somebody like him, you know, but instead of being, she would have been someone like him. Right, right. As opposed to, no, she reminds me, she reminds me of my daughter because she is a girl. She is the right age. And my daughter could have been a physicist, but no, no, my daughter could have married someone like him. And so just to, because a lot of people who are, you know, going to hear us will, will agree with us on this point. But one of the things that often happens whenever you point out sexism in a story, especially an older one, is people will, men especially, um, primarily men, will will react, but not only men. Uh, they'll react and they'll get defensive and they'll be like, well, I know people like that. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but if you know people like that, the solution, we're not saying that you can never have a woman described that way, but it's like, look at the percentage of the time you have women described this way and the percentage of the time you have men described this way. You need to realize like that does not reflect reality. And... You know, it's like, like you said, if you do have a bulk of history or a bulk of fictional work that has plenty of women not like this, then yeah, you can do whatever you want, but you have to earn that, you know, Um, because, and Asimov doesn't. And it's really disappointing. uh, And I think it is one of many reasons why I don't like this story as much as the others, because it kind of brings this into stark relief. But, uh, but at the same time, I still think it's well written as a whole, uh, if you kind of understand his problems Uh yeah and to me it's just a really weird story to start this volume uh because this whole book we have we both have that we're talking about starts with this story and i feel like this is not emblematic of asimov this is not the example of asimov that i would tell people read this and this will tell you what asimov is like it's a standout Uh, story like it's different from his other work right right it's dour all the people have questionable motives uh and uh like there's no hope at the end where's the follow-up story that talks about how the world changed for the better because now everyone can see the past or how they got past this you know yeah but we can we can lift ourselves up by moving on from this to the last question uh so yeah mandy let's talk about the last question the last (laughs) question is my favorite non-robot asimov story boom Uh, including novels uh yes okay it's it's up there, but I, for whatever reason, my favorite non-Asimov, non-robot Asimov thing is actually, uh, it's uh, The Gods Themselves, which is a, a novel. Good, it's a very good book. But uh, uh, this is just, this is the definition of a big picture story. They're not really characters. Uh, there are snippets of people. Like, you know, people come and go very quickly uh, to the point where you don't need to remember anyone's names. And they're even written that way. They're written with names that do not lend themselves to memory at all. Right. Uh, But uh, it's this big picture idea of these two guys. uh, Well, I guess, first off, there's the Asimovian idea of the multivac, right? (laughs) Which is so Asimovian that it just makes me giggle. (laughs) So it's really funny because to think about it, he first developed the multivac before transistors existed. Yes. Um. Which is why that continues to be a thing. Uh, and in this story, he actually mentions transistors, but by this point, he's embraced the multivac and just keeps going. Right, uh, it's which in I more appreciate. Than one story, the multivac. Yeah, and uh, it never really goes away. It's even in the you know this the multivac is even in basically the robot stories, right? Like the right. world computers, the the country computers, uh, they are the multivac. I don't know if they call them multivac in the robots universe. Uh, but I have uh, to go back. I think it does. I think that the predecessors, like, they, they get supplanted by the positronic brain, but um, essentially at some point. 
because at some point in the ro- robot universe, computers are basically just big robot brains. Right, um, right. And so their world computer in the robot verse is a positronic. Uh, but it's still kind of the same idea that you have this computer that runs everything for you, uh, that you ask it questions and it tells you what decisions you should make with the stock markets or, you know, what crops should get water or whatever. And, and just to step back just a second. So Multivac is a giant computer that's like a, what is it, a building-sized computer, essentially, it, it, to start with? I it was like a mile long. But... A mile long, yeah. So, But it's, historically, it takes different forms when he first describes it, but it's gigantic, and it's based on, say, like ENIAC and other similar um, computers that we really had in, you know, the, I'm trying to think of how long ago ENIAC, uh, like in the 40s, I suppose, um, and it was basically back when we were building giant room-sized and building-sized computers for, for code-breaking and stuff like that, because everything was vacuum tubes, right? right? And the only way you could make circuits more complex was to make them physically bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, um, before the transistors started shrinking. So, um, right. so the idea was that for a long time, the only way to make computers more complex was to make them bigger. And that's when we start with the multivac. Um, and yeah, so... You, they, there's these two people having this two dudes i guess having this discussion um and they're not like scientists they're like the dudes who transcribe the code for the multivac and it's basically their job to babysit the multivac right um so there's a thing and i don't know like mandy obviously you you know have an engineering degree and so on and i don't remember how into computer science history you ever had to get or got of your own free will um not are really. you familiar with like so there's this general concept that is uh, that thankfully has fallen away, but there was this sort of a slang terminology that people use, and they talk about like the uh, the priesthood being what, who stands between regular people and the computers. <laughs> um, and it was really like back when everything was punch cards and code and stuff. It was it sort of used uh, derogatorily. Like for a long time, the only way you could do it was be a special person who had access to the computer directly and so on. And that comes across a lot in Asimov's computers long term. Um, it takes him thousands of years and most of his stories to get to the point where regular people have access to a computer if they ever. Uh, and for us, one of our big advances is like, no, computers are a thing that people have, right? That was one Everyone of the big... Everyone has them in their pocket now. Right, exactly. And uh, and that's pretty awesome. So these two people are essentially the priesthood of... Like, they're the people who interface for with the computer for everybody else. Yeah. And they're just like messing around, drinking on the job. Oh my goodness, was this written in the 1950s? Well, to be clear, they're drinking when they get to relax because the multivac has just solved the problem of energy for humanity. <laughs> because up until now, we've been using coal and uranium and and the multivac was the one that decided, you know what, we're going to harness the sun and I am going to develop a system for you that you can build that will make it so that human humanity on Earth has unlimited energy to work with. And so we stopped using coal and we stopped using uranium and we, and this was... Like, this story takes place right after they flip the switch, or, like, a week after they flip the switch, to just give humanity uh, infinite sun. And it's some weird, like, laser tether where where they have it's, a satellite. Like, yeah, it's like the robot Mercury story, right? Right. The, the whole idea that you have this laser-shooting condensed sun at the Earth, basically. Right. It, it stands... It It's always sun side of the Earth, essentially, and it takes the sun, you know takes the sun's energy and beams it down to the earth. And then that's distributed amongst the earth. Um, and so everybody's got power. Uh, and therefore, because humans are ostensibly, we're now free of having to figure out how to do energy, we're free to do other things. And so these two dudes are like, well, now that we don't have to deal with energy, what's our next thing? Like, 
what, what, well, what's and they're kind one? of like, oh, well, the one guy's like, well, now we have unlimited energy. And the other guy is like, well, for a few billion years, right? Yeah. Like, you know, until the sun goes out, what do we do then? And they're like, well, that's not our problem. But still, what do we do? And uh, then I don't think uh, the idea I got and I'd have, is that they're not supposed to ask the multivac questions without being told to ask the question. Uh, but they're like, well, let's ask the multivac. Right. Uh, and they're kind of tipsy and they don't even remember asking the next day. But uh, and a big part of it is that like multivac has basically been on a break because people are busy celebrating this huge development. Right. Right. Uh, and so they basically ask the multivac, you know, hey, what do we do? about the sun and this whole entropy thing and the multivac is like there's insufficient data for a meaningful answer which is a reasonable response because <laughs> yeah <laughs> they just asked it what to do uh how you know what to do when the sun dies and the multivac's like uh i don't know <laughs> yeah and, and they even have a discussion they're like you know don't even say that the obvious thing is to go to another sun because that's gonna die too so sure that might be good but eventually all the suns die like what do we do right well i think at this point they actually only ask uh what they say is a uh, will mankind one day without the net experience expenditure of energy be able to restore the sun to its full youthfulness even after it has died of old age so the question is not can we move to another sun but can we fix the sun right but amongst themselves they have that discussion right but they decide that that's not really relevant to the question like right. that's that doesn't matter so yeah and then it just kind of ends there and goes on to a new set of people uh who are actually explorers uh going to a new sun going to a new planet and they Leaving have earth directly right yeah and they have a microvac. <laughs> And it's so funny because Microvac is the length of their spaceship. And they're like, man, it's a good thing we recently started miniaturization. And think about how long out in the future this is. And I just like look at my phone, you know. <laughs> I, I, no, not just that. I look at the watch on my wrist, which is a smartwatch, which has a has a computer, you know, that is way more powerful than what ENIAC was back in the day. So um, it's just... It's really funny. But yeah, microvac. Great stuff. Our microvac um, is the best microvac in the world. Uh, so yeah, it is. It's a great one. So tell us about who decide, like why this question gets asked again. Uh, it's basically kids, right? Yeah. Uh, kids discussing with their planets, uh, with their plans, planets, <laughs> with their parents <laughs> about how they're coming to a new place. And the kids are like, oh, planets will go on forever. It's going to be so great. We'll just get to live forever. And the dad has to go there and be like, well, not forever, honey. Don't forget about entropy. And I'm just like, wow, dad. <laughs> and the kids are like, what's entropy? He's like, well, you know, just everything fades away at some point, just like you. <laughs> and he and scares like, his kids and his wife gets mad at him. Because <laughs> she's and like, so why did you have to go there, honey? Why? Now, thankfully, he understands the mistake. And he's like, okay, we'll ask, you know, our minivac. And he gets it to print out the question because he knows the answer or he knows that this might not give an answer that's satisfactory. And then he lies to them and says, yep. Yeah, you know, Minivac's going to get it taken care of. Don't worry. Don't worry <laughs> your pretty little heads about entropy. Uh, but of course, Microvac says the same thing. It says insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Uh, but he doesn't really care because he didn't really ask for himself. He asked to calm his children down because he scared his children with stories of entropy. Uh, and they're they're about to land on their new planet. So what does he care? He has a brand new son, you know? Yeah. Uh, super funny, too, because he uh, there's a concept in this uh where they don't even like 
this guy doesn't even remember what to call my, like, he doesn't even know what to call Microback. He doesn't call it a computer, right? He's like, I, he has a vague recollection, like, someone long ago told him that the AC stood for analog computer once in the day. Uh, but he doesn't even really remember that. Like, he's on the verge of forgetting it. In ancient so, English. Yeah, in ancient English. And so it's just a funny point because it's like they don't even call them computers anymore, which I actually think that that's likely to happen to us is we'll stop calling these things computers at some point. You know, like we they'll just become so pervasive to us that, well, it's just whatever. It's a thing. Um, uh, and we'll talk about this more because the next thing is the the next generation that that talks about is who who are i'm trying to remember vj 23x so the, the thing about this story is the names yeah. uh, asimov has this idea in this story that as we get more advanced we'll get like numbered names weirder we get like, less individualistic right? right so even in the last story the kids you know the dad's name was jared so the kids were like jaredette one you know and jaredette two and jaredine and so, no, no, so it was jared and Jaredine was him and his wife and his kids oh, were yeah. Jaredette one and two. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so now people have names like VJ 23 X, which you think could be like, you know, possibly your planet, possibly, you know, except his planet's Lameth, but whatever, like, th- like somehow this is giving you some information about their family history, but these names just get worse as we go. Um, but these people are looking at the galaxy. This is basically the point where the galaxy is filled, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And they, they talk about, I think the, it, t- it's going to take them the galactic AC. Yeah. The galactic AC. And they have a lot of different galactic ACs because each galaxy has its own, but these guys go and, uh, and they're, it, what is it? It's like, it'll take, uh, five or 10 years to like 10 years to fill up this galaxy and then five to fill up the next one and right. so on. Uh, they're, because they're, they're so, they're, there's so many people and people aren't dying anymore. Right. Like these two people are, um, they look like they're 20 somethings and in perfect shape, but they're a couple hundred years old. And, uh, that's, that's this one, right? Uh, I don't know if it's this one. Uh, they're pretty old. Yeah, you're right. Cause he asks, how old are you? And he says 220. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but once again, this idea of like maybe the galaxy, even if it is infinite, one day it's going to end or the universe. Uh, so why don't we ask? And they, they just point blank ask, can entropy ever be reversed? They're not even asking about like, they ask the question, right? Right. And the computer, once again, is like, there is insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Uh, and then they just kind of forget about it as well. Yeah. Uh, one thing to highlight too, is here, the galactic AC is somewhere. I think they said like every once in a while, somebody is exposed to the galactic AC, like they know a person or something, but, uh, but they use essentially this small handheld device they to interface have iphones yeah yeah that <laughs> interface with the cloud right the cloud um, uh which is it's interesting too because this is a thing that he got sort of right and that you know you have like little computers that talk to big computers yeah but it didn't um, have to wait till the point where we were on a galactic scale uh, no no it didn't um and it goes to the thing because think about it the galactic ac is getting larger again right well sort of it's getting more complex but still larger than like the space one was right but uh Anyways, so yeah, then we go from them to Z Prime. Right, who, like, is now not, like, tied to a body. Right. Uh, They can just, like, they're basically living in the internet. Sort of, but their bodies still exist, and if their bodies die, they die. Right, but they're basically, they were able to hook themselves up into some sort of network that all the other individuals are also. Uh, And so they can talk to other people that they've never met before. And what's interesting is the first question they ask here is, we don't know where humans come from. Yeah. Uh, so they ask the galactic, not the galactic, excuse me, the universal AC, uh, 
hey, where does uh, where did people come from? This is also a very Asmovian idea that at some point we'll have spread out so far we'll forget about Earth. Right. Um, but in this case, the Universal AC knows and it shows them. But that galaxy, this original galaxy of man, is is gone. I think it's uh, uh it's not. But uh, Earth is dead, and the sun, our sun, is a white dwarf. Right. At this point. Uh, so, uh, and they're, uh, these two people get depressed because right. they're like, they're looking at it and each of them is essentially living in their own galaxy, it looks like. And they just every once in a while come into contact with each other. And they say very few people are being born again, because why would you reproduce right. at this point? Uh, and they, and they're like, well, you know, how's your galaxy? Same as every other galaxy. Yep. Mine too. I just call mine galaxy. And then, and they're like, oh, well that's depressing. It looks like just every other one. We thought maybe this one would be special, but nope. It's not. Right. <laughs> and so this time they ask, how do we keep the stars from dying? Uh, and the other guy sums it up as, you're asking how my entropy reversed. Uh, but once again, the universal AC says there is yet inf- insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Uh, and then they just, once again, they kind of, uh, they don't forget about it because they actually build new stars. Right. Because they're like, well, it's not going to die yet. And it's not going to die on my watch. <laughs> but and these guys are powerful enough that... Uh, uh, they they can collect hydrogen to build stars out of. And it says, uh, if the stars must someday die, at least they could yet be built. Uh, so they're trying to fix the universe. Uh, and yeah. then, then we go forward again uh, uh-huh. to the cosmic AC and man, uh, man, capital M, because uh, all of mankind has mentally become one. Right. So the, the stars and galaxies are gone, right? Right. The universe is dying. And uh, so, yeah, like you said, man has become one and essentially man is having conversation with man and the ac like the two different thoughts that would oppose each other that are normally two different people talking to each other are now one person um and then it's talking to the to the is it it's just ac right it's cosmic ac it's not just AC. uh they, okay. they still call it the cosmic ac and the man asks about entropy oh, oh yeah, yeah yeah the cosmic ac get gives the same answer but this time man is like well then go collect additional data if you don't have sufficient data and cosmic ac has said uh I will do so. I have been doing so for a hundred billion years. My predecessors and I have been asked this question many times. All the data I have remains insufficient. Uh, and then man's like, well, will there ever be sufficient data? And the cosmic AC says, no problem is insoluble in all conceivable circumstances. Uh, and there is yet insufficient data, but he's basically saying there will be some. Data. Or there could be, I think, is what is yeah. sort of the implication, right? He's like, there could be, which is why I'm not going to say this is not answerable. So I'm going to keep trying because I can imagine, like, almost, it's almost like saying I can imagine a situation in which I finally have enough data. Right. 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 And then so man says, will you keep working on it? And the, the cosmic AC says, I will. And man says, okay, we'll wait. Yeah. So, so now, um, so I'm sorry, I did skip ahead before when I said that the stars and stuff were dead. That's this coming time where it is just AC, which is like right. the stars are actually dead. And man is fusing with the AC. Uh, they're becoming one. Right. Uh, and it's right before man finally, the last bit of man fuses with AC and he's like, is this the end? Can this chaos not be reversed into the universe once more? Can that not be done? And the AC is still like, there's insufficient data. Uh, and then they fuse together and... Exist oh, in hyperspace. Yeah, they exist in hyperspace, but now man and the AC are one. Yeah. And so once they, like, m- you know, after that, matter and energy are completely gone. Essentially, the universe, space, time, all that's gone. So AC ostensibly lives just in hyperspace right but which the is AC outside still of remains and it's still dealing with the problem right and now it's it, 
you know, it's still dealing with the problem, still trying to figure it out, and time is no longer a thing, so you can't really measure how long it tries to figure out this problem and time. But, uh, and this, this ending is just so good, <laughs> I feel like. Um, it said, uh, you know, it, and it came to pass that AC learned how to reverse the direction of entropy, but there was now no man to whom AC might give the answer of the last question. No matter, the answer, by demonstration, would take care of that too. For another timeless interval, AC thought how best to do this. Carefully, AC organized the program. The consciousness of AC encompassed all of what had once been any uh, had once been a universe and brooded over what was now chaos. Step by step, it must be done. And AC said, "Let there be light," and there was light. End story. And I love that so much because <laughs> that's the ending, and it's amazing. <laughs> it, it's it's so amazing, and you know, so affecting, uh, especially like you know, we are religious, and the story of the beginning is a story we are very familiar with right? Let right. there be light. And there was light. Uh, and this idea that you, it's a non-religious idea, but it's still an incredibly hopeful idea that everything could be destroyed and we could fix it. We would find the answer, you know? Uh, and I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so hopeful and so affecting. And just one of those things that like, I bring up this story a lot and I'm always like, you know, there's that one Asimov story where the computer is God <laughs> in the end, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's not just the computer. It is essentially the computer and man, yes, right? Yes, like it's all that man came to be together. So it ostensibly has a soul. all man came to be and all man created coming together to be more. Right. And then essentially it's like, man, it's brooding in this chaos. It's like, I kind of want to create order again, <laughs> or I want to create order. And so I will. And, you know, let there be light. And then it proceeds to, with the program. And it's just like, you know, it, it's so satisfying an end. And it just builds and builds and builds. Um, yeah, real good. I mean, but it's the definition of an idea story, right? I can imagine Asimov being like, what if a computer was God? <laughs> let me work back from there, right? Like, how would that come to be? Uh, and uh, they're the only consistent characters is the AC. Uh, but it is a changing, growing from one ACs to the next, right? But you can argue all ACs are in the next ACs because ACs don't really die. They're just computers, right? Right. Uh, and the men are interchangeable and they don't, the names are unimportant. It doesn't matter who they are. It's the fact that men, mankind asking this question that's a universal question of basically, I don't want to die, right? Right. It's either I don't want to or I at least, or I don't want humanity to. Right. And it's, you know, and essentially they're the same question at some point. Right. Because uh, I feel like they can accept that they're going to die at some level, uh, but they're like, but everyone's going to die. Everything's going to die. How do we stop that? You know, because when people are going to die, one of the comforts they can take off is their legacy, right? But if the universe is going to end, there is no legacy. What's the legacy of nothing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so they keep asking the computer the same question, and the computer remembers, and it's constantly working on it. It's never... Uh, never stopped thinking about it from the moment those first two guys fooling around asked. Uh, and then it comes up with the answer and it has no one to tell, but it does it anyway. Yeah. And uh, and in the end, it's just, there's not much else to say about the larger story. Uh, uh, I did at least though talk about uh, some of the technology things that are just really funny to me. Um, and again, it's sort of the getting the tech wrong that I really enjoy that Asimov does. Uh, so I, I just found a few different things like, you know, we talked about multivac and minivac and so on, and it goes various sizes, but I, it was really funny to me at one point when he talks about like each AC is kind of creating the new, the next one. Right. Right. But the fact that you would just have 
one individual generation. And it's like, it sounds like these would be huge leaps each time rather than gradually becoming another galactic AC and then a slightly more complicated galactic AC. Like it seems like each one's sort of a leap. Um, whereas if you look at the way that our technology progresses, it's much more gradual. Um, you know, we do use our processors to help design our next processors and every single year we're putting out iterative designs that are better and better and better and better um, rather than it being just like entirely different huge steps every single like huge incremental steps like they're they're much less uh, distinct steps um but also i actually do see so our perspective is limited as is asimov's and so on but a lot of people who are who think about things in just the way that computers have gone in the last i don't know 30 40 years and they've been getting smaller and smaller and more powerful and more powerful but we are actually pretty close to the theoretical ending of that um right now with our so computers have worked pretty much the same way since the transistor came to be. Right. Uh, and we are getting pretty close in the grand scheme of things to the atomic limits of how our modern transistor concepts work, uh, which I think a lot of people who don't follow this stuff don't realize. Um, it's been decelerating lately that uh, processor transistor sizes have been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking really rapidly at pretty much the same. Uh, they've been you know, people talk about Moore's law, which is roughly that you'll be able to increase the density of transistors, like double the double the density by uh, every year and a half or so. And we are no longer hitting that anymore. And it's that and like, we're getting slower and slower at that. And a lot of people are like, you know, some point soon, we're just going to hit a barrier, we can't pass with that. And we're going to have to go from transistors to something else. Uh, which is just an interesting, interesting concept, because like, we already in our lifetimes you know this has been going our entire lifetimes and our gut is just to assume this is the way it's always going to be but it's not um and so i'm interested to see like if we can't find an you know i'm optimistic we'll find other ways to solve similar problems faster uh whatever they'll be but there'll be some things that transistors will be good for for a while even when they're not the best solution for all the things they're currently the best solution for and uh and i think for a while we might actually get back to the fact that you know computers just have to get larger and larger and we have to do more remotely and pipe it to the smart devices in our hands that will no longer continue to get smarter and smarter. Um, and so uh, right now, as we do more stuff sort of, you know, in the cloud and so on, and we're using these smart devices in our hands, the smart devices in our hands are still getting powerful at just as fast a rate too. But that's going to stop for at least a little bit if it doesn't move to some other paradigm entirely. And I'm, I'm interested to see what that's going to look like. Hopefully we'll see that in our lifetime. But, uh, but it's, it's the kind of thing where... If I were writing a sci-fi story now, having seen how off people can be from 50, 60 years ago, there's no way I would count on people using just more and more powerful transistor-based computers 50 years from now. Right. Like, I just, I just wouldn't count on it. So, uh, yeah, it's a really cool, cool thing that uh, I really enjoy about this, but definitely not the central point of this story at all. Well, one, one of the things about this story, though, specifically, that's as, that's... You know, this Asmob <laughs> idea that I that I talked about a little bit earlier of uh, giving all your questions to the computer and the computer answers them. Uh, and not in a Google sense, in that Google looks for the answer uh, that someone else posted, right? It's right. that you give the computer a question and it thinks and comes up with a plan and answers the question. Uh, that That is a, something that's in a lot of Asimov stories, not just this one. Uh, and there's kind of like Asimov has this idea that computers can take care of us better than we can, uh, and that we should trust the computers. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, like, not anti-technology message, right? Like, uh, you give the computer the answer of 
the question of deal, take care of energy and the computer thinks about it and it's like, okay, I've solved the energy problem. Or, you know, you give the computer the question of uh, solve world hunger computer and the computer's like, okay, and it thinks about it and then it comes back with an answer. Uh, or, you know, even in the end with the robot series, right? Like uh, the, the zeroth law, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the computers and the robots are here to keep us safe and they can do nothing otherwise. Uh, it's, it's a very anti-Terminator. Like, I feel like Asimov is the antithesis of like Terminator and the Matrix. Yeah. Uh, Terminator and the Matrix are the real fears of now that uh, our computers, when they become smarter than us, they will kill us. Whereas Asimov is the opposite. He's like, when they become smarter than us, even to the point where they basically have a soul, they will be doing what they think is best to take care of us. Now, that said, he does visit uh, both sides of that coin, even with that base assumption in the robot series, pretty in detail, right? Right. Like, because they're too simple, even though they're doing that, it's actually hurting us for a long time. And so what, and especially complex, well, we don't want to get into it, but es- no. <laughs> essentially that for a while... We need to remove the influence of those computers because they're holding us back without meaning to. Right. Right. Because they're coddling us. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but their intentions are still the best possible. And that's actually one of those things that really, I'm sure, frustrates you just as much as me with the iRobot movie. Sorry. Uh, but it's just, the the fact is, like, in his world, this optimism about how computers and, and stuff and how we can use them, it hits core to his three laws of robotics. These are not compromisable, right? right? Like, they are our servants and care about us, whether because it's their programming. They will do, they will do their best to serve us, period, end of story. You cannot change that. And it's just... And it's just a matter of what that looks like and whether that actually turns out to be what's best for us or not. You What's know? really interesting to, me, interesting to me and contrasting it with Terminator and the <laughs> Matrix, and as most people who know me know, I love Terminator yeah. and I love Asimov, uh, but I feel like intrinsically the difference when the computers are the good guys, who does that make the bad guys? It makes mankind. Uh, yes. I, I feel like Asimov feels like the computers will take care of us and we are our own shortcoming, right? Uh, not them, not the things we create. But our own human nature is go- what's going to fail us. Whereas when you look at Terminator and Matrix, it's the opposite. It's the computers are trying to kill us. And our human nature shines as an example of sacrifice and just the beauty of like what, what it means to be human. And, you know, so while Terminator and Matrix are both depressing in one sense, they're uplifting in another sense. And while I don't think Asimov believes humans are like horrible, I uh, you get this idea that the cycles that harm humanity, like going back to Nightfall, right, are right. not because of the technology. It's because of the humans. Absolutely. Um, and you and I talked about this earlier. We talked about the general optimism that he has about human nature and we will always overcome challenges. And I think that's the thing is like we are – his stories identify human flaws, right? But they identify that in the end he does believe in humanity it's just that robots and computers are a mechanism with which we can help ourselves overcome the darker parts of humanity to succeed to to highlight the best parts of humanity right right like that's that's essentially what he does and again it's why i like him so much is it is in the end he's more optimistic than anything else it's just right he doesn't but it's like but our own evils humans evils are the evils period it's not outside evils. Right. And I feel like if Asimov had written The Matrix, it would be that humanity asked the robots to put us in this situation. Like, the world is awful, robots. 
create an environment where life will be good. And the robots, almost like the Terminator, not Terminator, the, the Matrix 3 craziness with the architect, right? Right. But, and, the, and then the computers are like, okay, we created a utopia for you. And the humans are like, we hate the utopia. Well, no, we would buy in for a while, right? right? Like most people would buy in and you'd have a few, a handful of a few who'd be like, you know, this really isn't right. And the robot or the Matrix would fight them over it because it's like, no, no, it really is. Like, right. I genuinely believe this is what's best for you. And the victory in the end wouldn't be fighting the machine. It would be convincing the machine that it's wrong. Convincing the machine that it's wrong or convincing humanity that it's wrong. Because sometimes in Asimov stories, that works too, right? right. Like, the, ro- the machine's able to convince mankind around and be like, hey, no, like, this really is what's best for you. And in the end, mankind's like, it sucked for a while there because we're stupid. Or not stupid, but because of human nature. But, you know... Robots, you were right. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and I do think that if you, because he does both sides of it, especially in the robot novels, which you and I love so much, uh, and just that universe, if you kind of take that as a model for the Matrix, it would probably be a little bit of both, right? Like, there'd be this mutual convincing, and then in the end, you would have a better Matrix that understood, and people working alongside it, and they would kind of deal with like, come to the best possible outcome of using both. I honestly right? think if Asimov had lived to now and ended the Foundation series now, it would have ended in The Matrix. Maybe so. I mean, but, that's essentially what we got with this story, right? Right. Uh, and and that's, that's something to discuss when we discuss the final Foundation book and how it does end. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Asimov would have watched The Matrix and been like, what? <laughs> you know like why but we can live in heart like why wouldn't you live in an artificial created by the robots you know which is why and maybe it's this asimovian outlook because asimov you know i read him in middle school and i know you also i think you read him young as well uh i started in early high school i want to say like sophomore freshman sophomore year something like that but asimov's uh, optimism like has super impacted and infiltrated my brain, right? Because uh, I, I read him very young. Uh, and uh, may- maybe that's why I would get in all these arguments with people and whether the Matrix is really good or bad, uh, which we should totally do a Matrix podcast one time and get in that argument. Uh, <laughs> we should. But it's like, you know, people would be like, but it's not the truth. It's not real. And I'm like, but I'm in the matrix and I'm human and you're in the matrix and you're human. And we met in the matrix. We're still humans having a human relationship, (laughs) you know? And maybe that's the Asimovian outlook because he's just like, human nature is human nature and technology is good. (laughs) It has like infiltrated my life. I feel like I would end up like, I'm very much a, I would not want to be in the matrix if I, if I knew but I feel like there's a compromise there to be had somewhere. Like, uh, and, and again, it part of it has to do with why is the machine doing it, right? Like, because um, in this, in the Matrix, you know, humans were enslaved, right? It's not a, it's not kind of yeah, a cooperative. But, and maybe we're getting off topic. But is yeah, it, we are. Is it more of a, is the guider fish enslaved by the shark? You know, like if I can live my life and meet a real person, fall in love with a real person, have a real baby... You know, like that baby, even if I'm not really pregnant because I'm in the Matrix, like the baby I'm given is a real human soul. And the battery, and we happen to be batteries for computers. We all get to live. Yeah, but I think, and I guess part of it is in the end, and I think this is the central thing about the Matrix is like, did humans have a choice, right? Um, Which is probably what I would come to is like, do you get to choose or not? So I don't know. And I I would feel like the Asimovian answer would be humanity at some point chose to be that, right? Right, exactly. And that's very different. Right? Humanity would have made the choice to go into this 
symbiotic relationship with the computers. And I feel like that would be the difference between the Matrix as we're given by the Wachowskis uh, versus the Matrix if it had been written by Asimov. Right. And that is Fun one of those, you get into a whole other experience, uh, whole other discussions about like ends versus means and so on too, right? Like how you get somewhere versus the destination, which matters more and so on. So many large discussion for another time, I think. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, any other notes on this? I, I guess, do we want to give some recommendations on uh on things for people to do i mean i think ideally i robot like maybe get this short story and i robot and read the both of them uh this short story collection and i robot or because they don't have any idea what the robot stuff is like other than what we've just mentioned that's true that's true but uh if you if you like asimov short stories after you read these you will like the i robot stories uh and if you like the i robot stories you will like Caves of Seal. <laughs> uh, and then you can go from there. To you can the go other. from there. You may not, I, I will give the warning. Caves of Steel is a legitimately good book. It's a legitimately good novel. It is. It's a detective mystery set in a sci-fi, an alternate sci-fi future. Basically. Right, which we will not say probably anything more about right now other than it is right. legitimately great. It is one of my favorite books. Foundation is a great set of big idea short stories strung together in a novel form. Yes, and the series, <laughs> the the central trilogy is a, it's an interesting uh, uh, It's It's a classic. It's great. We will talk about it someday on this iPod and we will tear it apart. Uh, but when I reread Foundation recently recently, like three years ago, I was like, wow, this was written in 1950. Uh, yeah. Whereas when I reread Caves of Steel, I'm like, this is a great book. So uh, it's it's so. funny you say this. Um, person we both know, uh, I, I guested on a podcast today recording talking about Dune and Foundation came up. And Dune Age is much better than Foundation does, uh, despite not being that much newer. Uh, and it's really just a matter of Foundation, I think, is great as a historical artifact, and people should read it if you are intellectually curious about how science fiction has changed over time. But it is nowhere near Asimov's best work. Uh, it does not age especially well. It's nowhere near the best thing in that universe. Um, so uh, if you're curious about Foundation and you know us, talk to us about it, and we'll give you other things to read <laughs> before that. Or wait for but, the podcast on Foundation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, I mean, but that's a, if you want to read Foundation, great. Uh, feel Don't free to. Don't use it to judge Asimov. Right. Do not let it deter you from other Asimov. If you're reading Foundation, you're reading it just for the intellectual curiosity of reading Foundation. Um, don't. It, it is not a... I am glad it's nowhere near the first thing I read from Asimov because he... I probably wouldn't have stuck with him as much as I did. And I will say, if you don't want to read a book and you're curious about Asimov, watch Bicentennial Man. You know, out of all of the Asimov movies made, that's that's a pretty good representation, I feel like. Uh, that's encouraging because I've never seen it because I was afraid. So no, I will go watch uh, it. I mean, I will not say it's identical to the short story, but I will say it captures the heart of Asimov <laughs> in that it's uplifting uh, and it's hopeful. Uh, and it discusses the three laws well, unlike some other movies that we have talked about on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, so, uh, uh, and then, you know, that will give you a good idea of how you feel about robots. <laughs> and I feel like you can go from there. Uh, but uh, no, I think the Bicentennial Man movie is actually really good. Uh, it's it's a, definitely a family-friendly movie. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's... Uh, it's just hopeful and optimistic and gets into discussion of the three laws, but also kind of shows human nature. It's hopeful and optimistic overall, but, you know, 
the robot racism, if you will, mm-hmm. of how people treat robots versus humans and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, the short story that's based off of is also really good. There's also a novelization I have not read. Uh, I own. I have not read it. Uh, it's I believe I've read it. I honestly don't remember what I thought of it um, because that was a period where I was probably reading like three or four Asimov novels a week or something. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, the short story sticks out much more in my head because I've read it several times. And I'm pretty sure this will not be the last time we talk about Asimov. <laughs> because let me tell you, we have not even gotten close to talking about my favorite Asimov thing, which is robots. Well, uh, I, same. And I feel part of it is that there's so much that you and I probably have a hard time figuring out how to attack it. Yeah. Um, because we want you listeners to be able to follow along without feeling overwhelmed. Right. Right. Uh, but I do. Uh, the last question is my favorite non-robot story. Uh, and all that it's not even really a story I mean it is but it's not a story in the sense that we think of stories now it's a very big picture story Uh, but I still love that I love the big picture kind of sci-fi of the 50s and 60s that used to exist uh, where you could just have an idea and write 2,000 words on it and uh, you didn't have to have characterization or plot Uh, again it's that purity of sci-fi right it's just that like that's it we're not getting overly involved in I mean, there is people in nuance. We talked about that. But there's also like, hey, just, you know, here's the concept. Right. Explore. You know, your connection in the last question is that you are human. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I love that. Me too. So I, I think uh, in general, whenever people ask me because they want to get started on Asimov, uh, I always mention the three things I always mention to get started on are uh, iRobot and Caves of Steel. Uh, and then... I always go with the gods themselves, but also read other short stories. So Nightfall and the last question pretty frequently come up as well. Um, so, but if you, if you've read these and you like them, I think that's a solid set of other things to explore. Yeah. So I tend to just throw copies of Caves of Steel at people and say, <laughs> and walk off. Uh, I've definitely bought probably seven or eight copies of Caves yeah. of Steel, three copies of, I can't, uh, I don't even know themselves. how many times I've given away Caves of Steel as a Christmas present, but it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know at some point I had five different copies and now I have one. So <laughs> I called my uh, iRobots. Uh, I'm down to one, uh, but I have limited space. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, well, on that note, uh, Mandy, uh, we are, uh, I mean, this was really fun. I'm glad we finally got to talk about Asimov on the podcast. Um, and I hope that maybe some listeners will read more of him and share our love for him. Uh, but you can follow the, uh, what is it? The podcast, podcast. <laughs> at, at Triv Crucial. On Twitter, uh, you can follow. Uh, you can check it out on the website at Trivially Crucial. You can follow Mandy on Twitter at Brown underscore Aja, which is A J A H, and you can follow me on Twitter at Auhim, which is A U H I M. Peace. Bye.